We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, everyone. I'm going to begin with a quote this morning from probably one you've heard from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said famously, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because it by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, not just because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christianity is not just about seeing. It's about receiving sight in order to truly see. When a man or a woman grasps the truth of the gospel message, everything is seen different. This begins first and foremost, I believe, with our understanding of ourselves. We live in a culture today where it's acceptable and really even normal for people to promote themselves, praise themselves, and put themselves first. Sad to say, but pride is really a virtue in our culture. Humility, on the other hand, is a weakness, it seems. But this perception of, or this preoccupation, maybe we could say, with self-esteem, self-love, and self-glory, it really is destructive in every way. No meaningful relationship is possible if everyone is committed, first of all, to themselves, right? It just won't work. The sad reality is this preoccupation with the self finds its way into the church. I'll give you a quote. It's been said that the fastest growing phenomenon in modern Christianity is the emphasis on pride, self-esteem, self-image, self-fulfillment, and other manifestations of self-ism. It's about you, we're told. It's about me. But this cannot square with the Scriptures. Self-ism is counterintuitive to the Gospel message. Because it's a distortion of the person and work of Jesus. And I want to show you that this morning from John chapter 13. But there's a question I want us to consider this morning. Again, it's a reflective type of rhetorical question. And it's this. If you are a Christian then God has rescued you from sin. He saved you from destruction. But God not only has saved us from something, God saves us to something. So in your mind, maybe you fill in this blank. God has saved me to a life of... You're cheating. comes to mind. You're going to see that the service is the answer I'm going for, for sure. What comes to your mind, if you're honest? We know the right answer. God has saved you to a life of what? We're continuing our DNA series this morning with our second mark of how we're defining a disciple, a loving servant. As Christians, we are responsible for three relationships. With God, 
with other believers and the world. We describe our relationship with God last week as a devoted worshiper. We said, we define worship as our full life response to who God is and what He has done in Jesus Christ. A full life response. Response is an important word. To who God is. And how do we know who God is? Because of what He's done in Christ. This morning, we'll be addressing our relationship, our second relationship with one another as loving servants from this beautiful chapter at least a portion of it, John chapter 13. I want to give you a main idea. Hopefully I can unpack it for you. Here it is. As the church, we're called to be a community of sacrificial love as a demonstration of the gospel which has saved us. So as the church, we are called to be a community of sacrificial love. Why? It's a demonstration of the gospel which has saved us. I'm going to read from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Follow along in, God's, in your copy of God's Word. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He said to Simon Peter, then, then he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, what a, we come to a, an especially intimate section of Scripture this morning. One I know most of us are familiar with, at least in topic, 
familiar with in the story, but Lord, what an amazing text. What an amazing paradigm-shifting reality that you, the Lord of glory, would do this. Lord, by your word and through your spirit, Lord, press this text deep into our hearts this morning. Help us to see you and align our lives as such so that we can be a community that reflects you. But Lord, challenge us. Convict us. Open our eyes to pride in our life. Cause us to serve like our Savior this morning. Lord, we give this time to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Just going to provide, hopefully this morning, three aspects of what I'm trying to get us to think about as a loving servant. So three aspects of how I'm defining a loving servant from John chapter 13. And first we'll begin with a loving servant must embrace the heart of Jesus and the gospel. There are two important markers which frame our text and really set up the scene here. First, we're told this story takes place in the context of the Passover meal, which was meant to, for God's people to remember God as both Savior and Deliverer of His people. We're also told in verse 1, this Passover happens during the arrival of the long-expected hour. Jesus knew His hour had come, the text said. I made mention of this last week. This is a common theme throughout John's Gospel. John uses such language often to speak of Jesus approaching death and resurrection. The hour is coming. So this is Thursday evening. This is the night before Jesus will be suspended on a cross and publicly executed for the sins of mankind. The sun would not set again before Jesus would die as the true Passover lamb and sin bearer of mankind. So with these two markers, the Passover meal and the hour of departure, maybe we could say the the shadow of the cross looms large over this text. In other words, this is not just a text about foot washing and humility. It's a text concerning the gospel. It's a text concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for sin. It's a text concerning the saving, cleansing power of Jesus through His humble, sacrificial service towards us. This all begins with the heart of Jesus, as we see in verse 1, which is a heart of love. I'll read it again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The whole scene this morning is an expression of love. You can't miss that. This word love appears 12 times in John chapters 1 through 12. It appears 44 times in chapters 13 through 21. Love, in other words, is what motivates and carries Jesus to the cross. And to understand love properly here, we must understand this distinction Jesus makes between, you see it in the text, His own and the world, which is everywhere in John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus, John states that Jesus was in the world, The world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. 
John chapter 15, 18 through 19, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is making a very important distinction between those whom Jesus chose out of the world, those whom believe in him, and the mass of lost humanity. The world from which believers are called out of. So I want you to hear this. John chapter 13 is about Jesus' love for His own who are in the world. Believers. Yes, this includes first the disciples, but it also includes those who would believe after Him. Directly applying to us this morning. So Jesus speaks here not, of a, not in terms of a general love for the world, but a particular love for His own. It's a love for His newly forming people, the church. It's a love we know if we know Christ. And it's a love we must embody if we are to be His disciples. So, how has He loved us? The end of verse 1 says, to the end. Or maybe you have unto the end. Now this could mean two things. Either... It speaks of the full extent of His love. Maybe it could say He loved us utterly. Or it could be temporal, meaning He loved His own to the end of His life. Either way, Jesus displays His unfailing love for us through His cleansing work on the cross, depicted first by this self-denying act of foot washing. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. In the gospel, Jesus loved us to the end. The loving servant begins with embracing the heart, the loving heart of Jesus. Jesus' love was of full investment, full commitment. He knew very well why He came to earth. The cross was no surprise to Jesus. As the text says, He knew His hour had come. Jesus embraced the cross. He committed His life to one of self-sacrifice and service. And why did He do this? Because He loved His own to the end. That's why. And let's be honest. Love in our culture is about me. My emotions, my feelings, my desires, my will, my expectations, my demands. We express love, we say, to those who we deem worthy of such love. But the love we find in Jesus in the gospel is altogether different. Jesus' love is selfless. It's sacrificial. No one deserves it. No one. It's an act of service on behalf of others. And to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to love this way. We must make this same commitment. We must be willing to make this same investment. As he says, to die to self and to live for him. Expressed through our lives to others. 1 John 3.16 says this. Two great love passages in the Bible. John 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that He laid down His life for us 
Now just think for a minute. What would you expect to come next? Therefore, we should love Him with everything we have in, in return. That's true. That's right. How John express it? By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, sisters, believers. Now, our love for one another, church, earns us nothing from God. I want you to hear that. But it does express something. It expresses whether we truly know and have experienced the love of God in Christ. We must embrace the heart of Jesus, which means we must embrace this life of sacrificial love towards one another if we have experienced the love of God in Christ. So first we must be embrace the heart of Jesus. But secondly, a loving servant is motivated by the humility of Jesus in the gospel. Whenever you hear, and I say this with all humility and grace, and hear this, I'm not saying this flippantly, but anytime you hear a person who says Christianity is like all other religions, you can be absolutely certain they have no idea what Christianity is about. That's the honest truth. They're clueless as to the gospel. There's nothing like the gospel. There's no one like Jesus. The next nine verses make this point crystal clear. Jesus' special knowledge of His Father's will for Him, articulated in verse 1, is now repeated, but with significant addition in verses 2 to 3. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, right, lured away by darkness, Judas has already co-opted with Satan and become one of his ploys. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into His hand and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus is no ordinary man. He's the divine Son come to earth from heaven. He's the one invested with all authority and power, John says. He's the Lord over all heaven and earth. And this Jesus rose from supper. The beginning of verse 4 says. Now, let's try to act like I, you haven't read the rest of this text. I haven't read it to you this morning. You don't know what's about to happen. What would you expect came next? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hand, and He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. What would you expect to follow? with such power and status at His disposal, we'd never expect what we read next. Having come from heaven and having all authority in His hands, He assumes the posture of the lowliest of servants. And He washes the disciples' feet, including Judas, His betrayer. I mean, we, we might possibly be able to consider maybe the thought of washing. But, but Judas? We cannot miss what's happening here. I know this is a familiar text to us, familiar verse to us, but we, we, we should not pass over this too quick. The Creator washes the creation's feet. The one who has all power and authority kneels as a servant. 
Jesus is a, a servant king. He's Lord of the towel, as one preacher says. The disciples would have never conceived of washing each other's feet. It was bad enough for peers to do this, but what Jesus does is really outright scandalous and culturally unbelievable and thinkable. Feet are bad in any culture, right? But just imagine what feet look like in a town walking in sandals on dusty roads shared by animals. Do you want me to be more descriptive? I can. To the shock and amazement of the disciples, Jesus, the sovereign Lord, fills a basin with water. He gets on his knees. He assumes the posture of a slave. And he washes the disciples' feet. I, I don't know. I, how do you really apply this verse to your heart? How do you think about this verse? And here's a question I ask myself. Does your Christian life, Jimmy, does the way you think of yourself, the way you interact with believers, the way you interact and carry yourself, does it make sense of this verse? Is this your Savior? This is your King. This is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Is there space in your life for this type of humility? As would be expected, silence breaks out among the disciples. Except for our boy Peter. He objects in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter. Jesus came to him who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? To which Jesus replied, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Important statement we must not miss here. In other words, something is going to happen which will help Peter process this. What is he talking about? He's talking about tomorrow. He's talking about his death on the cross. And then Peter emphatically replies, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's still operating on a purely physical and cultural level. He's like the woman at the well last week, right? Give me some of this water so I don't have to come here. Jesus is speaking of living water. This is outrageous to Peter. Peter won't stand for it. But then Jesus makes it clear there's something more going on here than simply washing feet when he replies in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no share, no part with me. Peter doesn't quite get this. And we know that because of what Peter says next. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's a man of extremes, right? You shall never wash me. Give me a full bath. Wash everything. Jesus replies in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. What is Jesus saying? 
Remember, this text is under the shadow of the cross. Jesus knows his hour has come. Jesus is not simply teaching a hygiene course here. Jesus is pointing forward to the cleansing work which only he provides, I think, with somewhat of a dual application here. In verses 6-8, six, six through eight, the foot washing symbolizes the cleansing that is the result of Christ's impending death and resurrection. Peter, Jesus is speaking about what is going to happen on the cross. He's telling Peter the spiritual cleansing that you need to remove the guilt of your sin. I will take care for Peter on the cross tomorrow. For you to participate in my kingdom, you have to have a share with me, a part with me. Your sins must be washed. The death of Jesus on the cross is not just a sacrifice. It's an atoning sacrifice. In other words, it cleanses us. It removes our guilt, bringing us back into right relationship with God. Without the cross, there's no salvation. Because without the cross, there's no cleansing. Unless the Lamb of God takes away a person's sin, washes that person, he or she has no part with Christ. No one enters the kingdom of God. No one has a share with Jesus unless they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You must repent and place faith in Christ and receive His cleansing work to have a share in the kingdom. Peter's excited response regarding taking a full bath, though, I think opens up the opportunity for Jesus to turn the foot washing to another point that this initial and fundamental cleansing, this justifying cleansing Christ provides on the cross is a once-for-all act. It's not something to be repeated. Jesus says, Peter, once you have taken a bath, you're clean. You don't need to rebathe your whole body. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, Peter, you're mine. He's saying, Peter, you belong to me. Your faith makes you mine, unlike Judas and his unbelief. He's not clean. You are clean. You're mine, Peter, and my death on the cross will justify you and declare you right. You are clean by my death. You don't need a whole new bath. What you will need, what we all need, is daily cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin. Remember, he's preparing his disciples as he leaves. Daily humility expressed in ongoing continual repentance through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is the life of the Christian. You've heard me say this before. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is not sin. If you're a non-believer this morning, and a Christian has ever told you or insinuated the difference between you and them is that they're not a sinner, they've lied to you. Flat out. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is not sin. It's the response to sin. It's repentance. 
Both the unbeliever and the believer are sinners. But believers are repenting sinners. We have first repented unto salvation and turned to Christ. But we are also, we live a life of daily repentance and humility. That's what it means to follow Jesus. John would later tell us in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look, humility, repentance, and sacrifice is the center of the Christian life. It is the gospel. There is no gospel without humility, repentance, and sacrifice. God's sinless divine Son dying a cleansing death in the place of sinners like you and me is the heart of the Christian faith. So without radical humility, there is no cross. Without a cross, there's no Christianity. Without repentance, there's no salvation. I I was told this statement before. It's a here it is. It's a tough one. Evidence. It was told to me directly. Evidence that you are a believer in Christ, present tense, is not that you have confessed sin. It's that you are confessing sin. Evidence that we are believers in Christ today, present tense, right now, is not that we confessed sin in the past. It's that we are confessing sins today. Humility in the Christian life is the Christian life because servanthood is the mark of our King. If you're to follow Jesus, you're following this King. Here's a plain statement. If you're you're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, here's a plain statement. Humility and repentance is the entrance into Christianity. There's no other pathway in. Humility, expressed through repentance and faith in Christ, is the entrance into the Christian faith because humility and repentance is the life of the Christian. You don't repent and humble yourselves to become a Christian and step into a life that's totally different. This is the life of the Christian. A life of humility and repentance. A life of daily seeing our sin and our need for Christ and going back to Him in the Gospel and humbling ourselves and repenting and receiving His mercy and grace afresh. Now Christianity does promise victory. We are victorious people. It guarantees a crown. It promises an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But none of this is possible without a cross. Without death. Without repentance. Without humility. This is Philippians 2, right? The therefore God has highly exalted Him comes about because He left heaven, became a servant, became a man, died a death on a cross. He went down, down, down in order to be exalted. There's no crown without a cross. There's no Christianity without humility. I have another question. 
if the sovereign Lord was willing to humble himself in this way, will we allow our pride to keep us from doing the same? Hey, that rhymes. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Let me say it again. If the sovereign Lord was willing to humble himself in this way, will we allow our pride to keep us from doing the same? To be a loving servant is to live a life of humility because of the humility of our Savior on the cross. A loving servant. Motivated by the humility of Jesus in the gospel. Thirdly, a loving servant accepts the call of Jesus in light of the gospel. Jesus asked a very important question in verse 12. Look at it. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? find it interesting if you go and read Luke's account of this Passover meal, we read in chapter 22, verse 24, that at this very moment, a dispute had broken out amongst the disciples as to who was the greatest. When the cross was just a few hours away, the disciples were blinded by pride and couldn't understand what was happening. they as they're arguing over who is the greatest. Just imagine the scene. And in the midst of this argument, the great one, the Son of God, gets on his knees and washes their feet. How amazing Jesus is. How unlike us he is. What a moment it must have been for the disciples following the cross when they were sitting together and reflected back on this. How that moment must have been seared into their minds. Following this foot washing, though, Jesus issues a call. Do you understand what I have done to you? Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you, if you do them. Jesus issues here, I think, a call to the, a life of servanthood. He issues a call to embody the very message of the gospel which has saved us. And I know if you have interacted with, and I think... a. There's some traditions that take this passage and make an ordinance out of foot washing, that it's demanded in the Scriptures that we wash feet. I, I think that's a little too far because I think that we could wash feet very clearly and not be demonstrating the humility of Jesus here. I don't think there's anything wrong with foot washing per se, but I think foot washing is used to point us somewhere else. He issues a call here, I think, really to embody the very message of the gospel which has, has saved us. Jesus tells us in Mark that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How much more should we serve one another? Jesus implores great logic here, right? If this is true for the greater one, me, how much more for you, the lesser one? 
Do you understand what I have done for you? Jesus asked. That's a question for each of us this morning. Do you understand what Jesus has done for you in the gospel? The way we serve one another says something about our knowledge and acceptance of what God has done for us. How Jesus has served us in the gospel. Again, the discipleship question always goes back to obedience and transformation. It's not about how much do you know. It's how has what you know transformed your life. It's possible to be a new believer six months, a year into your faith and be a more faithful disciple than someone who's been a believer for years, has multiple PhDs, studied the faith academically. The question is, how have you taken what you know and applied it to your life? I wanna, let's just reflect for a moment, maybe internally as the church. So if someone was to maybe watch our lives, you can want to think about this corporately. Someone wants to watch our lives as the Hill Church. See the way we interact with each other. See the way we do life together. See the way we pray for one another, care for one another, or the lack thereof. What conclusion would they come to regarding Jesus? Would our life together aid or hinder their understanding of the gospel? Would they see the false self-seeking sense of love and greatness in our culture in us or would they see the humility and selflessness of Jesus in the gospel this really this really isn't a hypothetical question I want you guys everyone to look down to verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13 This is Jesus' point. This is the conclusion of his section of teaching here. The foot washing and everything he has said in this chapter builds towards this concluding statement. Verse 34, a new command I give to you, speaking to the disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Remember, Jesus is leaving. He's preparing the disciples for his departure and how they are to carry on his mission of making disciples once he leaves. To do this, he gives what he calls here a new command of love. Following this foot washing. But is this really new? Isn't this the repeated refrain throughout the Old Testament to love your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? The command to love is nothing new. Jesus says it's new though. So what's new about it? I think at least two things. I think we find a new standard of love here. And a new order of love here. Jesus says there's first a new standard. Jesus says a 
A new command I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the new standard. Just as I have loved you. So how did He love us? He died for us. The new standard is Jesus, His love. Yes, in this foot washing, but ultimately in His cleansing death upon the cross. It is His sacrificial and self-denying death for our sins which produces, which provides us with our new standard of love. We love by serving one another. Modeled after the posture of foot washing. This points us to the cross. So what does that look like? I think it looks like the preceding verses to the verses we read in Philippians chapter 2. Maybe we should turn there. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I think I have a few of these verses on the screen, but I think we should read them in a little, a little more depth. Philippians chapter 2. You there? Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry, maybe you have, or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. A church operating by this new standard of love is a body of believers who have put their preferences and self-interest on the shelf for the sake of others. For the sake of the body of Christ. Competition, comparison, self-promotion is out the window. It's been said, you're not a mature Christian until you can root for other Christians. Now we do struggle with this. I know this because we're no different than the church in Philippi. Paul was writing to Why do you think Paul wrote this command? To have humility. Remember the humility of Christ in the cross. Because they struggled with pride. They struggled with selfism. Just like we do. Paul said, do nothing. Pretty full word. Do nothing. Selfish ambition or conceit. Why? Because of the new standard of love. That's why. Just picture for a moment. Why? Why should we do nothing from 
selfish ambition. See Jesus. In the midst of the disciples. The ones who are going to reject Him. They're going to run from Him tomorrow. Peter's bold now. He will not be bold tomorrow. I've never heard of this guy. Who, Jesus? Me? I don't know this guy. I know nothing about Him. Jesus, in the midst of this group, while they're arguing about who's the greatest, and He goes and grabs a basin of water, gets on His knees, starts washing feet. Why do we count others more significant than ourselves? See Jesus hanging on a cross, being reviled by those around him, hanging there as a, a criminal, meant to depict in full shame and agony. See him dying there on the cross and him saying, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. I met a I met a brother, a Chinese brother, a couple of weeks ago, who atheistic background was told there's no God. He said he went to a church service with friends because there was food and the potential of girls. So he told me, and he heard a sermon on Father, forgive them; they know not what they do. And he said. I've never heard anything like that in my life. I must go think about this. And it was a couple months later he came to Christ. So why do we do nothing from selfish ambition and rivalry? Because of Christ. The new standard of love. He's our new standard. The new standard of love is expressed through humble service toward one another. But then there's a new order of love. Instead of love of neighbor, we have a, a new command to love one another. Now, we know this doesn't erase in any kind of way or contradict love of neighbor. We know that. I think it's just a new focus, maybe we could say, a new order. We are to love one another. We are to be people of the towel, foot washers and servants. We are to love one another in this way. That's not all he says, right? Jesus doesn't throw out love of neighbor. Our love for one another is not an end in itself. He says that by our love for one another, by us serving one another, our neighbors, all people will come to know that we are His disciples. The church of Jesus Christ, we are to be a community marked by love. By Christian love expressed through sacrificial service. Our love is rooted in the Gospel, the sacrificial death of the Son of God for our sins. Must be a people of humility, a people of quiet submission to one another in Christ. If we do this, the world will see we belong to Him. It will see the, the radical nature of that message. Forgive them, they know not what they do. That message is in them. This is the call of the church. To be disciples. Now, I want to say something. I... The Christian life is a calling to share our faith, to evangelize the lost, to advance the kingdom of, of darkness. I mean, to, to advance the kingdom of light in the midst of darkness. 
We're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at what is our calling to be a spirit-filled witness. That is a must. There's activity which we are commanded to take part in. We must do this. That'll be next week's sermon. But I do think we miss something. We overlook our identity as the people of God and how it relates to our witness and our evangelism. Evangelism involves identity just as much as it does activity. I think the two are intertwined. Our identity is to is really grounds and informs our activity, our proclamation of the gospel. We are to be the gospel made visible. When they hear the message, they should see the message. We're to be a community of love if we want to share the love of God in the gospel. Long quote, but a good quote. Francis Schaeffer. Speaking on this verse, he says this. In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward other Christians, the world has the right to judge that he is not a Christian. Here Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Let us be careful, indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gave is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. This is the whole point. The world is going to judge whether Jesus has been sent by the Father, judge the gospel, on the basis of something that is open to observation. What observation? The church. This observation is our love for one another. This observation is the church. Our calling is to embody the gospel message which we are commanded to proclaim. Discipleship is about becoming what we are in Christ. Individually, yes, but much more importantly, as His people corporately. Our calling is to embody the gospel we proclaim by Loving one another as Jesus loved us. Relationship to God. A devoted worship. He's the Lord of our life. Everything's about worship. Relationship to one another, believers. We're to be loving servant. A loving servant first embraces the heart of Jesus, which is love. We know love. But Jesus laid down His life for us. So we must lay down our lives for one another. The loving servant is motivated by the humility of Jesus. The center of the Christian life is a cross. But the center of our lives must be humility. We must humbly serve one another as Jesus served us. And then we must answer the call to love. Just love one another, church. Just as Jesus did. And by so doing, the world will know that we are a people who have been radically changed by Him. As the church, we're called to be a community of sacrificial love as a demonstration of the gospel which has saved us. Close in praying with prayer. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer, 
you heard the words of Jesus, you must be washed. If you have questions about that cleansing power of the gospel, I'm here to speak with you. Church, let's consider this morning where we put self before others and how we can embody the gospel that's called us, that saved us. How can we be an expression of the beauty of the gospel in this community as the church? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we pause, Lord, we We consider again the, the riches, really the, the, the mystery to our minds of the gospel. That you, the sovereign Lord, would, would serve us. Would lay down your life for us as a cleansing sacrifice. Lord, what? beauty, what majesty, what glory. Lord, let us not see service. Let us not see humility. Let us not see putting others first as something below us. Let us understand the privilege that we get to align ourselves with our Savior by doing such. Lord, my prayer is that Lord, we would be a church where everyone defers to everyone else. Begin that in my heart, Lord. Let's be a body of believers that every time we walk in a room, we each have the posture of I'm the least important in this room. Begin that in my heart, Lord. If we do that, we will magnify the gospel of Christ. For anyone who doesn't know you this morning, I want to pray for their heart and their honesty. But Lord, pray if it's pride that's keeping them from humbling themselves to you. That they would see their pride and their unwillingness to submit their lives to you in light of your radical humility. In a room of not even peers, those lower than you, that you would wash the feet of the disciples. You cared nothing of the eyeballs of others, but for the glory of your Father. I pray that would be on the heart of anyone in this room this morning that doesn't know you, that you would drive the truths of the gospel to their hearts this morning and cause them to humble themselves and repent and trust you. Lord, mold us and shape us as a church. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.